and be seated. Turn to me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. I'm sorry, I'm having little troubles here. I wrote down the wrong text uh, here at the bottom. It'll take me just a second. There we are. Okay. Reading from uh, verse 32. Actually, I'll back up. I'll back up to verse uh, 27. But our text is from 32 and following. Reading to verse 50. Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. The he, of course, there is Pilate. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took his robe off and put his garments on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mingled with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And they put up above his head the charge against him, which read, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple, who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now. If he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. 
And the robbers also, who had been crucified with him, were casting the same insult at him. I'll stop there, actually. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we thank you that we have your precious word before us. We thank you for this passage in particular that reminds us of something we need to be reminded of daily. uh, The suffering of our Savior on our behalf. Would you please, as we look at this familiar text for most of us, would you please drive home afresh uh, what it took to purchase our salvation? And would you please help us to respond appropriately? Grant grace to me, the preacher. Give me unction, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Children, um, all eyes up here, kids. There we go. Um, You know that on your way here to church, you drove on several roads or streets um, when you were in the car, and all, pretty much all streets have names. Most all of them do. Occasional back lane might not, and back in the... uh, uh, countries somewhere might not have a, uh, a name, but most all streets have names. And uh, most names uh, are only known by the people living in the, immediately area, in the immediate area around where the road is that, that uh, you're thinking of. Uh, so, in, um, so, for example, uh, some of you children, the Hayes, live on uh, Hickory Hollow. Um, and while you know the name Hickory Hollow, and your neighbors do, and some of the folks down the street know of Hickory Hollow, and perhaps a few folks around town um, know about Hickory Hollow, but I'm pretty sure that nobody in Colorado knows about Hickory Hollow, or Florida, or Mississippi, or Michigan, or Canada, or China. Nobody's heard of Hickory Hollow in those places. I'm pretty sure, I might be wrong, but probably I'm right. Uh, same with uh, University Avenue. Some of you children live off University Avenue. And while that's familiar to folks in Nacogdoches and most of the folks down here in Lufkin, you get out to uh, Laredo uh, or Lubbock, uh, and most of those folks probably don't know about the place called University Avenue on which some of you children, the priests, live. Now, some streets... Uh, are familiar, their names of them are familiar not only to the people living in the immediate area around those streets, but also are familiar to people uh, on a much greater geographic area, like, for example, in your state, or maybe even your, your country. And some streets are even known around the world. I'll give you a couple examples. Sunset Boulevard, and I believe it's Hollywood. I believe it's Hollywood where Sunset Boulevard is. A lot of people have heard of Sunset Boulevard, even though they've never gone to California. Um, Another street that's familiar, Broadway, is in, uh, is in uh, New York City, in Manhattan. A lot of people have heard of Broadway. Uh, a lot of people have heard of 10 Downing Street. That's in London, England. It's a famous street on which the Prime Minister in England of England lives. There's another very, very famous street 
that's found in the city of Jerusalem today. It's called the Via della Rosa. Uh, and that's a Latin term. Um, it means the way of suffering. And uh, that is a street uh, on which many believe Jesus was led on his way to the cross. Now, it's church tradition that people are relying on to identify that street that Jesus was led down to uh, out, out of the city to go to the place of uh, where the cross was at Calvary. Uh, so we don't know that for sure, but church tradition apparently indicates that uh, the uh, Via della Rosa was the street that's still uh, in existence uh, today, uh, portions of it at least uh, are. And it is called the way of suffering, of course, children, because if Jesus did indeed go down that street on his way to dying on the cross, then the almost unimaginable physical suffering that Jesus was experiencing as he was going down that, being led down that road, or a road similar to it, um, it was, it was, it was suffering in the extreme, just the physical suffering that Jesus endured. Um, and he is the most famous person to suffer on that street, and therefore it has its name, the way of suffering. Well, we're going to revisit that scene on that street uh, this morning, uh, and ne- also next Sunday as well. This is actually a two-part sermon. You get the first part this week and the second part next week, and you go, well, that's a separate sermon. Well, I'm using the same pericope, the same preaching passage, to preach both, and that's why it's technically two parts of one sermon. Even though I couldn't jam it all into one hour, you're probably thankful of that. So you get the second half next week. At any rate, uh, we're going to revisit that uh, uh, horrible scene um, this morning uh, in this sermon. There are four points to the sermon, only the first two are you going to get this morning. But they are as follows. We're going to first see and do see in this text the inevitability of our Savior's suffering. Secondly, we are going to see in this passage the severity uh, of our Savior's suffering. And next week we're going to look at the voluntary nature of our Savior's suffering and what was accomplished by our Savior's suffering. But this week... Uh, the first two points, the inevitability of that suffering and the severity of Jesus' suffering on our behalf. It was inevitable that Jesus was going to suffer. Um, and that is confirmed, the inevitability of Jesus going to the cross is confirmed by the fact that the events surrounding Jesus' death and prior to Jesus' death that we're reading of in this passage were predicted um, many years before Jesus was alive. In the Old Testament, the fact that Jesus was going to be crucified is predicted uh, in Psalm 22, that very famous, probably one of the most famous messianic psalms. In Psalm 22, verse 16, uh, we read, um, For dogs have surrounded me, this is the voice of Christ speaking through David as he's writing the psalm, for, the, for dogs have surrounded me, referring to his enemies who were making fun of him and mocking him. A band of evildoers has encompassed me, and it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. That is very clearly a description of what happened when somebody was crucified in the first century. And folks, that 
prophecy was written roughly a thousand years before Jesus was born, and it was written many, many hundreds of years before crucifixion was introduced to the Jews by the Romans as a form of execution. The Jews didn't know that form of execution when David wrote those words. You get the point. God wrote the words, anticipating what was going to happen uh, a thousand years hence, and put it in the mind of David to write those words when he was writing this psalm. God was predicting that Jesus would be crucified before the uh, method of execution existed. That tells you that Jesus going to the cross to be crucified was inevitable because it was predicted a thousand years prior. Jesus was crucified with criminals. Uh, I'm not going to turn to it, but in Isaiah 53, that other very famous messianic passage, verse 12, uh, we read that uh, the one, uh, the servant who is described there, the suffering servant, was numbered with the transgressors. A clear reference to his being uh, dying uh, uh, between two uh, criminals, uh, he being charged as a criminal, but obviously not. But uh, those other two men were actual transgressors of, God, of, of human law as well as God's law. Uh, it was predicted by Isaiah 740 years before Jesus was born. The hurling of abuse that Jesus received at the hands of his mockers in verses 39 and 40, that was also predicted back in Psalm 22, Verses 7 and 8. All who see me sneer at me. This is Psalm 22, verse 7. All who see me sneer at me. The me is Jesus, of course. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him uh, rescue him because he delights in him. Uh, Almost uh, uh, a verbatim of what we read in the passage that we're looking at today. Not quite a paraphrase of it, but the same thrust is identical, of course. And then finally, we see the soldiers dividing up Jesus' garments and casting lots for them. And of course, Psalm 22 once again, verse 18, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, written a thousand years before it happened. More than a thousand years. Clearly, the hand of God uh, inspired uh, the, God himself, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, inspired um, David when he penned those words in, uh, to predict what we're reading about here in Psalm, uh, in uh, Matthew 27, rather. So, and the reason that it could be predicted, the reason all these facts, and others, of course, as well, that I'm not mentioning, but surrounding the death of Christ could be predicted um, stems from the fact that uh, it was decreed, all these things were decreed would happen to our Lord in eternity past, before there was even time. Before the prophets were born, before David was born and could pen what he did, or Isaiah could, could pen what he did. In eternity past, before the foundation of the world, all these things were decided by the sovereign, uh, omnipotent, uh, all-decreeing God. This is clear, by the way, that God decreed all this in eternity. It's clear from what we read in uh, in Acts, when Luke says 
in verse, I'll start in verse 22, but verse 23 is the point uh, that I'm making here. Men of Israel, this is, of course, in Peter's Pentecost sermon, Peter speaking. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. And here's the part. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But it was a predetermined uh, plan of God. It was decreed in eternity, is what that is implied by that passage. And that explains, again, why uh, God was able to choose us in Christ, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world. He could choose us in Christ because he's already decided that Christ was going to die uh, Jesus had already uh, agreed to to act as our mediator and come in time and space in the womb of the Virgin Mary and be born and live and then suffer and die in our place. And it was all decided ahead of time. This is not news to most of you here today. But it is in the text. There's a, the, they're mentioned by the, th- the, the facts are mentioned by Matthew and the other gospel writers to remind us of the prophecies, to remind us that nothing, none of this is chance, that this isn't a plan gone awry, that Jesus was somehow supposed to be accepted by the Jews, but then, oh dear, they they messed the plan up. Some folks believe that. And God had to resort to plan B. No, not the case. It was inevitable that Jesus should die because because the triune God determined in eternity that that should be the case. But this text not only uh, points to the inevitability of Jesus' suffering, it points to the severity, um, and that's a mild term, of Jesus' suffering. John, in his gospel, the other uh, the other three gospel writers, the synoptics, those other three are called, do not mention this fact, but John does. In John nineteen seventeen. He speaks of the fact that Jesus was forced to carry the crossbeam of his own cross. Now, if you re- just read Matthew, Mark, and Luke's uh, uh, account, you don't see that. You see uh, uh, Simon stepping in and taking the cross for Jesus from Cy- uh, from Cyrene or uh, Cyrenia, I think it was called. Anyway, uh, Simon. Uh, but in in uh, in John's gospel, we learn that Jesus carried it first. When that crossbeam was placed on his shoulders, he was already in excruciating physical pain from the scourging uh, he had received and the beating that he had received over the head um, by the Roman soldiers that we looked at last time we were in this text. Much of his flesh had already been ripped off his back and ribs uh, by the flagellum. He was in agony before the cross ever touched his shoulders where there was skin missing and probably bone visible. He is then forced to carry that very instrument upon which he was going to be put to death, to carry it upon his exposed and bleeding bones and flesh. It was a long, heavy piece of wood. It was just the cross beam. We know that it wasn't the full cross because of uh, extra biblical data that makes that uh, quite clear. But he carried that cross beam, that heavy piece of wood, was digging into his uh, into his uh, torn flesh. Um, you can imagine. Well, perhaps we can't. But what a horrifying sight that must have been for his followers watching as he's 
as he's going down the Via Della Rosa with that crossbeam, the one whom they loved. He was supposed to, Jesus was supposed to carry it all the way to the execution site just outside the city walls, but he was unable apparently to do so due to his weakness and the uh, exhaustion that he was experiencing and the pain. So when the Roman soldiers realized what uh, that Jesus lacked the strength to carry it all the way uh, to the place of death, his death, uh, they forcibly recruited, as I mentioned, uh, a Cyrenian bystander named Simon to carry that crossbeam the rest of the way for Jesus. And it's recorded for us in verse 32 in our text. So he suffered from the... Uh, as he was going uh, on the way from Pilate's presence to the place of his death. But he suffered then, even more so, if that's imaginable, it really isn't, as he was physically crucified on the cross. That beam beam was laid down, he was laid down on top of it, uh, and then he was affixed to it. Rome generally reserved uh, this form of punishment, crucifixion for slaves and those who were convicted of the grossest of crimes, the most heinous of crimes. Uh, they were crucified, or slaves who were just dirt anyway, uh, in the in minds of the Romans. It was one of the cruelest and most painful methods of execution ever conceived of by the fallen mind. It has aptly been stated that a man who was crucified died a thousand deaths, before he actually died. Uh, The Romans, they would first strip the man naked, and it is possible that Jesus was permitted to have a loincloth out of respect for the Jewish sensibilities about such things, but uh, not very likely, actually. He was probably naked on the cross. Large metal spikes were driven into his hands and feet, to secure him on the crossbeam, there was a little ledge, uh, probably slanted, that he was able to put his backside on, uh, but which would, he would regularly slide off of. Uh, it, was, it was intended for him to slide off so that he would suffer more, so that he couldn't sit on it and relieve his hands. Uh, then after he was, uh, after the, the, Spikes were driven into his hands. He was lifted up uh, on the on the uh, vertical beam uh, on the upright uh, that was uh, secured to an upright post that had previously been driven into the ground. He was lifted up, and then his feet were uh, nailed to that uh, to that beam, that vertical beam. And then he and this is what what happened to any victim was left there uh, on that on their cross, exposed to the elements, the uh, brutal uh, heat of the Middle East, uh, and he was left to die of blood loss and uh, exhaustion and, and uh, physical torment. Among the horrors that one suffered before the end was extreme, apparently, bodily discomfort due to the strain having to push up against the, uh, uh, against the spikes in the legs to uh, relieve the pain of uh, on the hands and the uh, arms and the uh, shoulders. Uh, tendons uh, apparently were torn when this happened. Unbearable pain from that. 
swelling around the wounds uh, caused by the spikes and also uh, the wounds that the flagellum inflicted on the back and the ribs, throbbing head pain, um, and a burning thirst. Pretty gruesome. Why? Why dwell on such details? Why do I dwell on it? Well, the text does. Right? Why? Why, though? Why not just say Jesus died and leave it at that? This doesn't take a minister to figure that out. You and I are supposed to know how much or try to picture how much Jesus endured for us. And also that we might be astonished and humbled at the love that he has for us. He loves you that much if you're one of his children. He loves me that much. Didn't have to do any of it. Could have just said to each one of us, go to hell. Instead, took the hell. He then not only endured the sufferings of uh, the cross beam on his torn flesh and the, the excruciating suffering of the actual crucifixion on the cross, but then in the midst of it all was this mockery and this ridicule from wicked, wicked people. First from Pilate, lovely man that he was, He didn't have to put that sign above the cross, but he did. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. That was Pilate's way of mocking him. He certainly at least tolerated it if somebody else suggested it. Yeah, okay, that's fine. If he didn't actually say, put that sign up there. Mocking Jesus. Then there was the mockery of those, of course, who passed by on the way out of the city. Again, I could be reading from Psalm 22, but... Verse 39, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. That's that's direct word, wording from Psalm 22 that I read you earlier. And saying, you who are going to destroy the temple, notice, are going to destroy, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Then there was the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. In the same way, verse 41, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him, meaning God, deliver him now, if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, and here's the mockery again, I am the son of God. And then in addition to all of these um, fools and wicked people, there was the ridicule that he had already experienced at the hands of the soldiers uh, some time prior to the crucifixion. And then, folks, all of this was horrible that I've just described, but it was didn't hold a candle to the part that's coming next. And that is the unfathomable agony of being abandoned by God the Father. 
verse 46, and we'll get into this more next time, but the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, in Aramaic, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken. He who from eternity past had only ever known serene and perfect fellowship with and the approbation of the Father, his Father, who from all eternity had never known so much as a nanosecond of separation, personal separation from the Father, who during his incarnation had only ever lived to do his Father's will, now finds himself suddenly and profoundly alienated from his Father. God forsaken by God. How is that possible? Well, that cannot mean that God the Father stopped loving God the Son. It cannot mean that. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It doesn't mean he stopped loving his Son. Nor can it mean that the divine nature the divine essence or being of the Father and the divine essence or being of the God the Son were somehow separated. Because, of course, you can't... God is indivisible in his being, in his essence. There is only one God. There are not three gods that you can say, this is God and this is God and this is God. That's what heretics and unbelievers accuse Christians of believing, but it's an utter uh, straw man. No, it cannot mean that God was ontologically divided. If this were the case, God would cease to be God. uh, Because God, by definition, is one being, as I've already indicated. What it must mean, folks, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, is that God the Father and I qualify this, but this is the only language I could find, deserted, abandoned his son's human nature in the person of the God-man. And even this, in a limited, but yet a very real sense, I think that's about as close as I can get, at least, to explaining what that means. Because God can't be divided, and yet Jesus the God-man was forsaken without in any moment dividing God. And he is God the Son. So it has to have relation to his humanity. And again, you can't divide the human nature from the divine nature, so the God-man was forsaken, even though the divine nature was not. Again, we're in... This is mystery. But it is biblical, and we got to talk about it. It was an experience that Jesus had that was so unimaginably horrifying, we can't even begin to understand what it means. Jesus, God the Son, the Beloved of the Father, experienced infinite 
loneliness at that moment, loneliness, emptiness, alienation, agony, cursing, and wrath. Totally deprived, totally of the sense of the Father's love, totally deprived, completely of joy, of sense of purpose, of, I'm not sure about purpose, mercy and hope. We'll put purpose in abeyance there. But totally deprived of all sense of love, joy, mercy, hope. Because, why? Because he was totally alienated from the source of those things. Of love and joy and hope and mercy. God the Father. This forsaking of God the Son, of the God-man, was the principal manifestation of God's wrath and judgment against sin. It was the worst, by far it was the worst, of the many tortures and sufferings that Jesus endured that dark day. The scourging didn't hold a candle to this, to the, 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 the rupture of his sense of the Father's approbation. And why did all this have to happen? Why did Jesus subject himself? He was not subjected. He subjected himself. We're going to get into that voluntary part next week, uh, which we've talked about on other occasions, but the, it keeps coming up in the gospel accounts. So we've got to keep talking about it. Why did Jesus subject himself to such infinite torment by voluntarily becoming the God-man and acting in, in our place on Calvary? You know the answer. Because Jesus loves his own. If you're one of his children, if you're one of those who, for whom he died, it's because he loves you. That's the only reason he did it. Why else would he voluntarily go through all this other than because of love for you and me? You and I, Deserved, past tense, plural, uh, past tense, you and I deserved to be eternally separated from God, we who are Christians. You and I deserved to experience God's, uh, uh, eternal wrath and His divine and everlasting curse. You and I deserved to spend eternity, uh, in the flames of hell, body and soul. We deserved it all. And He took it. He endured it in your place and mine because he loves us. He acted as our substitute before God's uh, perfectly just throne on which this perfectly just God sits. He endured God's fury at sin, at rebellion, yours, mine, in our place. Pay the dreadful penalty for our sins. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, as Paul says, having become a curse for us. 
For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You will only benefit from what Christ did on the cross and what he did in his perfectly obedient life. You will only benefit from that and not get what you deserve, which is God's hatred for eternity. You will not, you will only get the opposite of that hatred, God's love and God's forgiveness and God's mercy, if you do one thing. And only one thing will allow you to avoid that. And that is, you must flee to Jesus in faith and repentance as your only hope of being forgiven by God, of being reconciled to Him, of not getting the hell that you, that I, probably more than you, deserve. That Jesus took for all those who would look to him to take it in their place. Do you have Jesus? I ask this pretty regularly from the pulpit, but do you have Jesus? Not just intellectually, not just, oh yeah, I, I know about Jesus and I can quote Bible verses and uh, catechism questions and about Jesus and I say grace at the dinner table. Children, do you have Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus alone, children? You know you deserve to go to hell just like Pastor Mark does. You're a sinner. All you children are. All of you adults are definitely sinners. Only Jesus can rescue us, deliver us, spare us. And he wants to save wretched people. If you don't have Jesus, come to him now. And if you do, Love him more. Love him more. He deserves more love from you than you're giving him right now. I can guarantee you that. A lot more. Ask him for the grace to do it, and he'll give you greater and greater love. And the Christian life's all about that, loving God more. Ask him to soften your hard heart if there's some hardness there and to give you deeper, more abiding affections for him. He will give that. Beg him for it. And he will give that to you. Let's ask him for it right now, shall we? Lord, we do ask you for greater affection for you, greater love, greater yearning for you, greater gratitude to you for what you've done for us. We need, you deserve that from us, Lord. And none of us are giving you as much of ourselves, as much love as we ought, even as much love as we can. Would you please, as we've been reminded of the indescribable price that you paid for to rescue us, would you please impress upon us how deep your love for us is, how vast 
and immeasurable the suffering that you endured for us was and how blessed it is to walk with you and to be in your presence and to seek your face and to live a life of service to you. Please give us a greater sense of the truth of that. And would you please make us love you more. And Lord, for those who might be listening, either here in this room or at a distance, who don't know you truly, who have been kidding themselves, maybe they've been trying to get into heaven by their good works or church membership or whatever, or they're trusting in, they say they're trusting in Jesus, but also trusting in their good works, would you please have mercy upon anybody listening to me who has been deceived about their right about their right standing before you and would you please open his or her eyes and give him new life a new heart faith to lay hold of Jesus alone for salvation we pray in Jesus name amen receive now God's blessing now may the god of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.